Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. Thanks for tuning in today. I really think you're going to enjoy my conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Hernando Chavez, who is a sex therapist and professor here in Los Angeles. Whenever I invite someone onto my podcast to interview them, it's because I admire their work or I feel like we're like-minded, that they have some sort of progressive attitudes about sex or sex-positive approach to share with the world. And boy, did I hit the jackpot today with Dr. Chavez. We're going to be talking about how we handle secrets in our clinical practices. We're going to be talking about a consistent trend that we've noticed where individuals and couples are coming in seeking guidance around consensual non-monogamy, and we'll be explaining what that is. We're going to be talking about how we both encourage our clients or patients to make peace with their sexual story or their erotic script and not only make peace, but uh, celebrate ultimately who they are sexually. We're going to be talking about love languages. We're going to be covering so much stuff. So I really hope that you're going to enjoy that conversation. Before we move on to that interview, I just want to do a couple of shout outs to residents in a number of states and countries around the world who are voracious consumers of Sex Savvy Podcast. No surprise, my home state by adoption, California, is the state with the most listeners of Sex Savvy. Texas, Lone Star State, thank you. You are enjoying Sex Savvy, and I appreciate the listens. In order, the states that are listening with the highest frequency to my podcast, after California and Texas include Ohio, my home state, Buckeyes, yay, New York, Illinois, Michigan, North Carolina, Utah, surprisingly, Massachusetts, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Washington State, and Florida. So if you are a resident in any of those states, I appreciate your support. I have listeners in every state, but Sadly, I have one sole listener in Wyoming. So if you are the listener in Wyoming, let me know who you are. Send me an email, call me and say, I'm the Wyoming listener. I would like to thank you personally for tuning in to Sex Savvy. In terms of countries around the world, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to Canada and the United Kingdom for being the countries with the most listeners after the United States, but I'd like to say thank you also to Australia, South Korea, the Netherlands, Sweden, South Africa, Israel, Germany, Ireland, India, Macau, Spain, New Zealand, Switzerland, Austria, Norway, Colombia, Egypt, France, Uganda, Portugal, Denmark, Belgium, Brazil, 
Finland, Japan, Mexico, Turkey, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Indonesia, United Arab Emirates, Costa Rica, Iran, Italy, Jamaica, French Polynesia, Poland, Saudi Arabia, Serbia, Malaysia. I could go on and on. Thank you to the Sex Savvy Podcast listeners around the world. It warms my heart to know that my message is crossing oceans and cultures. So let's move on now. And I'm excited to share my conversation with Dr. Hernando Chavez. Well, I'm really excited today to introduce my guest, Dr. Hernando Chavez, who is a professor of psychology and human sexuality at Pepperdine and a licensed marriage and family therapist here in Los Angeles. I am so excited to have you on Sex Savvy. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Kimberly, for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. We met through the Los Angeles Sexology Association. Is that what it's called? Yes, that's okay. it. Okay, which is basically a networking group for sexual health providers and sex positive providers in Los Angeles. And you are the sort of organizer and facilitator of the group. So thank you for doing that. That was quite a collection of very cool people in that room, was it not? Absolutely. It's, it's just a great way for us in a sometimes an isolating profession where a lot of us have private practices or one-on-one or individual clients that we work with. It's nice for us to have a, a place for us to connect, to share resources, to build relationships. And uh, people of all walks of life from the sexuality communities, we have pro-dom, sex therapists, sexuality professors, body workers. I mean, Surrogates. Surrogates, yeah. Yeah, yeah I w- I'm in solo private practice, and so it does get isolating. And it was just really cool to, to meet like-minded people. So thank you for coming in and doing this. You're welcome. Tell me, tell our listeners just about your general approach to sexuality with your clients. Sure. Working with my clients, uh, I want to meet them where they're at. And, and I do emphasize a more of a client-centered, person-centered type of therapy. But I also incorporate what I perceive as healthy, positive sexual health practices, which is being able to honor who you are, what you're interested in, who you're attracted to, what you're attracted to in a way that's non-shaming, non-pathologizing, that brings out more of the authentic self in a non-coercive and a consensual and a non-harmful way for yourself and for the, the people around you in the world that you live in, that many times we hide and we suppress and we are filled with guilt and shame around who we are as sexual beings. And oftentimes it's something that can be a healthy part of our sexual existence and, and identity, yet we, whether it's messages from society or from, from upbringings or from childhood or conservative you know, social constructs, that they sometimes create this pain around who we are. And I find that, you know, sex therapy and and sexual education can be wonderful ways to help reduce and alleviate some of that pain so we can be our true selves to the world. Liberating, life-changing. Some of the conversations I have in in this room, we're sitting in my office right now, Mm -hmm. gives people permission to make peace with the reality of what turns them on. And they've never been able to speak about it out loud without experiencing some kind of backlash and to be encouraged not only to make peace with that but to celebrate it and own it is just mind-blowing for some people. I think for a lot of people coming to therapy or reading their first book around you know the, the area that they want to explore this coming out process if you will it's sort of like them taking that first step of, of expressing to the world of, of whether it's coming out, whether it's self-awareness, self-acceptance. I mean, these things are incredibly important for us to, to be who we are Such in this a world. a huge part of our identity. 
that often are secret. And we know what happens when we hold secrets for a long time. They start festering and eating us up inside. And, and that's what I'm hoping that more people will go down the road of embarking on self-awareness, uh, self-acceptance, that idea of acceptance and commitment that a lot of us incorporate into our work. Let's talk about secrets for a minute, if mm-hmm. that's okay. Sure. I work with a lot of couples, and sometimes during an individual session, which I do with each partner to take a sexual history and a family history, they'll disclose something that is clearly a secret. And I talk with them about the pros and cons of keeping the secret. And I am a strong advocate of truth, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even if it's going to be painful. And so I'm always encouraging people to share what they can, if not the whole enchilada. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like why on earth would I tell my boyfriend that I'm sleeping with other men? Like there's nothing good that could come from that. But after exploring that and sort of sleeping on it for a while, she agreed to do it and told him. And it was incredibly powerful. And he said, I suspected anyway. I knew anyway in my heart. And the fact that you told me gives me my dignity back. And it allows me to decide whether or not I want to stay with you with full informed consent. And they stay together and they're better than they were. It doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't always work out that way, but I'm really happy to hear that there are times when people can take information like that and, and, and hold it both sacred in the sense of, the, of, of honoring honesty and, and the power that it has. So true. So true. For me personally, I don't believe that I should be the one to share or tell a secret. Right. I believe that that's up to the, the individual or the For people sure. in, in the session, the couples. However, I do encourage people that secrets can be things that do harm internally, that they can create internalized anxiety for individuals, and that many times to be able to find the courage and the bravery to share the things that we fear sharing about ourselves, being transparent, can be an incredible act of vulnerability and also something that can help over time create more bonding, more attachment, and even more of of a foundation in honesty within a relationship. Absolutely. This couple in particular She's having orgasm again because she's free from the burden of the secret. Of carrying it. She wasn't able to Mm -hmm. relax. She felt guilty. So she wasn't allowing herself to get to that level of arousal where she would experience intense pleasure because she felt like she didn't deserve it because she was cheating on him. And now that it's out in the open, not that there aren't consequences and not that there aren't struggling because of that betrayal. But the fact that her conscience is clear in terms of the secret, she now can enthusiastically respond to him in a way that is more satisfying for her and for him. Yeah. But I'm not encouraging everyone to to go home and, you know, disclose all your secrets. It's good to do that with support and to explore the pros and cons and, and assess whether there's any danger physical or emotional danger in sharing a secret. But just I, I wanted to say in general, I think if there's a therapeutic value in it and it's safe, it, it's an option that should be at least considered. Right. I agree with you. And I think that therapy is a great place to begin that process of expressing ourselves and also gaining that that sense of empowerment over maybe over that secret that sometimes the anxiety of a secret keeping held hidden has over us. And people keep a lot of things secret, like their orientation or their experience of their gender identity or the fact that they need 
a shoe in order to have an orgasm. And just to, I did an episode a, a couple of weeks ago on adult baby diaper lovers. I don't know if you happen mm-hmm. to catch that one. You have to check it out. It's great. And I had a client on who is an ABDL. And he said that he told his girlfriend right away because he's like, if this is something you can't deal with, we clearly can't be in a relationship. And very few people have the confidence and the courage to put something like that out up front. And I think if people could be more honest, you know, there would be a lot less games. And I think that it could also save not only the people that were start beginning to date, but also the individual themselves, the potential heartache, the potential sort of ups and downs, the rejections, the the pain that goes along with putting ourselves out there that... You know, I've encountered a number of individuals who utilize elevator speeches when it comes to practicing the way that they're going to share intimate parts of themselves. <laughs> so true. Whether it's uh, sharing that they have an STI or sharing yes, that they have a, a fetish yes. or, you know, expressing some parts of themselves, you know, they, that they, there is sexual fluidity, that all of these things can be so wonderful because you're either going to find people are not going to accept it. Exactly. People who may have, you know, a middle ground where they're willing they're to, try to explore work and see how they feel. And then there's going to be the people who are like, I could give a crap, you know, yeah, whatever, it's all whatever good. floats your boat. And don't you want to know? I want to know that one third who can't handle it or do, doesn't won't embrace it. I want to know that right away because then I'm setting myself up for heartache if I am, and them and them too. And or you make a commitment and keep it secret for 10 years and live with that. And then ultimately, there's some kind of discovery and the level of betrayal is 100 times worse. Yeah, that, that's where I find a lot of people, they may have inclinations or some sense of understanding early on, but then they get into relationships or marriages, they have children, and then they realize wow, this is who I really am internally. This is a part of my sexual identity, but I've already made a commitment right. and I hadn't shared this with them early on. Right. So there's this fear of of changing the commitment, if you will, or changing sort of the, the, the variables associated with our commitment. And that can be really scary for people because what if they leave us? What if they reject us? What if that doesn't work out in our favor? And I think that's where a lot of the fear and insecurity and the the challenges with, with finding that bravery and that courage come from. For sure. I got an inquiry for a new patient just yesterday He said that his wife was accepting of his homosexuality outside of the marriage for three years and then announced recently that she's no longer okay with it. And that's her choice. Mm -hmm. But now he has to decide what that means to him. His wife has every right to say, I'm no longer comfortable with this. And he has every right to feel like she reneged because she did. So how they're coming in to kind of negotiate what this means. And if it's no longer okay with her, does that mean that he is going to leave the relationship? Or does he stay in the relationship and he's monogamous? Right? There's no right or wrong answers. That's what I'm always telling people. We negotiate our own unique contract. And I always want to encourage people to realize that in relationships, it's a constant dynamic evolution. It is going to be changing, whether it's your relationship configuration, your orientation, your sexual interest, your Your motivation to give blowjobs. Yes. Right. You know, many times I hear men say, well, you were great. You know, you gave great blowjobs until we got married and now you won't do it anymore. Well, I try to explain there's not a strategic, malicious, I'm going to misrepresent myself as a enthusiastic blowjob giver and then I'm going to rip it away from him as soon as we get married. There is a, a authentic, strong motive to please our partner, mm-hmm. especially to cement a relationship. And it's not a bait and switch per se. There's no evil plan, right, to, to trick someone. But 
we gain and lose motivation to do certain things mm-hmm. at different stages based on so many variables. But a lot of, especially the men that I see, feel duped. They feel mm-hmm. tricked, like you misrepresented what you're willing to do. And I think it happens just a natural occurrence in relationships where we have a less authentic self that becomes a more authentic self. And if that is the trajectory that you have, you are going to find that you may have done things that were less you early on in the relationship in order for to please partners or to exactly. gain sort of that uh, closeness. Or right. I could easily probably talk to, to male clients and ask, well, did you really want to go shopping with them early on the exactly. relationship? Did you want to go antiquing? Did you really want to go antiquing? Yeah. <laughs> I hear that a lot. Did you enjoy the ballet all those times you exactly, went early on? Exactly, the- right? And if they did that stuff, but they did it because it was early on, but then they now don't you know, enjoy it as much and they're more vocal about it. Well, isn't that kind of what people do? That is the part of the evolution process that we're Absolutely. talking about, that we have to learn to acknowledge, talk about, even accept, but also come to some sort of middle ground in order for our relationships to truly survive and even thrive. So true. So true. Tell me more about the kinds of issues that people seek your guidance for. So in my practice, I see a split, about a 50-50 split with traditional sexual concerns around desire, around erection, around uh, libido, around uh, early ejaculation or delayed ejaculation. I tend to see if more male clients individually. Me too, actually. Um, and I, I just assume that it's more because males may want to talk with males and maybe females may want to seek out a female sex therapist for a certain female And the men I treat say they only would want to talk to a woman. Isn't, Isn't that, that interesting? Funny? Yeah. 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 Who, who knows? When I sought out a therapist, I personally wanted a female therapist because I just feel I can open up and I feel like more intimate with it with females and many of my best friends are, are females. So that was my comfort zone. But I'm glad to hear that there's you know, people for everybody and, and men are seeking out who fit, fits right for them. Right, right. Some men say they'd be humiliated to speak in front of another man about their lack of sexual prowess. But with a woman, they feel like it's okay. So yeah, who knows? Who and knows? Interesting. Everybody has their own sort of origins of, of where they feel of comfortable course. or where they feel sort of anxious and stressed. Of course. And that's why we need to provide options. Yeah. <laughs> that's why you're in business and I'm in Absolutely. business. Absolutely. <laughs> so what's the other 50%? I call them sort of erotic minority communities. Mm, and I love that. These would be individuals or, or couples or families that uh, have some unique sexual identity aspect to them, and they're looking for somebody who will be accepting of that. So it could be folks who are in the kink community, folks who are in the, the uh, fetish community, folks who are in the non-monogamy community, uh, folks who are in the LGBTQ community. What I typically find is actually there's a lot of people in what I call coming out processes mm-hmm. and coming out, whether it's with our orientation, our gender, our sexual interest, uh, mm-hmm. our identity. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of people who are exploring uh, non-monogamy uh, filling up my practices in the last Me few too. years. I find that I'm seeing also a distinction between there's a monogamous individual and a open uh, non-monogamous. So negotiation between the two, right? It's rare, at least probably because they're not coming to us because mm-hmm. they it's easier for them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the couples that come see me, one is more interested and more motivated to open it up and the other is a bit more reticent or right. nervous about it. And then we talk about boundaries and negotiating each of their comfort levels and we monitor how it's feeling. So a couple came to me and he said that he wanted to open the relationship and she was very nervous about it, but agreed. And she loves it. She's having a great time and her partner is sort of like, wow, like who knew you were going to, you know, like be able I had to embrace this, be yeah. able to embrace it. And she's really proud of herself and she feels sort of enlightened and evolved and is like, uh, believe me, she says, 
if you had told me I would be living this lifestyle as recently as even a year ago, mm-hmm. I would have said, you're crazy. She's like, I'm as straight laced as they come. She goes, but I'm really enjoying this. So you never know. Yeah. And and I find, too, that uh, in certain contexts, I mean, I think that we, we can do this in a very healthy, very uh, uh, honest and authentic manner. I don't believe that people should be opening up if they're trying to heal wounds in their relationship. If if uh, they're doing it because things are falling apart or thing, or they're having an intense conflict, to keep conflict, their partner happy, we have to be really mindful that that if we're doing it, if we're doing it in ways that enhance our relationship to celebrate, I think that's wonderful to honor someone's authenticity. But I think we have to be mindful: is it something that we're using to try to repair or heal something that is highly maladaptive or dysfunctional, or, or you know, areas that are broken within the relationship, like having a baby. A lot of people it's will say, similar. you know, well, our marriage is in trouble, so we're going to have a baby. I'm like, what? That's that's not going to be easy. <laughs> that that's adds more stress. More stress. And that's going to be hard. Yeah. I, I love that you talk with clients about that because I think it's very nuanced. And I think that people need to really reflect on what their motivation is. And I've had men, I, I treat a couple now, and she wanted to open up the relationship, and he didn't. He's much more traditional. And if she can't have that, she can't be in the relationship. And so he's been really trying to wrap his head around it and see, like, what could I tolerate? You know, what? how far can I dip my toe into this pool? And he said, you know what? I don't want to go in that pool. I just don't. I don't even want to dip my toe in there. And it goes against my values and my comfort and my vision of a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm sorry, but I can't get on board. So you need to decide if you need that, you can't be with me. So good for him. Yeah. And, and I find people have to do some internal work as well when, when they're exploring non-monogamy or if they can be in partnerships that open up. Is it a part of your orientation? Is it part of your core aspect of your sexual identity? Or is it something you're doing for more fun or for pleasure, just sort of an external enjoyment that you're adding for variety? Exactly. And I think those can, you know, when you explore those those differences for people, you can sort of discover what is something that is integral to their happiness, their fulfillment, and also what can be also pivotal towards their unhappiness or, their, or the discontent in relationships. Absolutely. For those of you listening, uh, Within the non-monogamy sort of umbrella, there's a number of different identities that people will ascribe to 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 identify themselves and also the relationships they like to get into. And the language is important because then we can also find people that have a similar perspective or a similar desire. So a swinger may not be necessarily on the same page as a polyamorous person. However, for someone observing them from afar, it may appear that they have some similarities. Absolutely. And they may actually not be compatible. It's very nuanced. And if you don't know the vocabulary, that's why I thought it would be helpful for you to go over that. Yeah. So the polyamorous individual, if you split up the, that word poly and amorous, it's really about poly meaning multiple or many and amorous meaning love or emotionality. So it's individuals who enjoy and thrive and desire having multiple partnerships with emotionality, love and, and deepened relationships uh, within their, their relational configurations. And there's going to be a great number of different varieties of how people express and do their poly. There's polyamorous individuals who enjoy hierarchical sort of uh, experiences where they have primary and secondary and tertiary partners. Uh, there are individuals who like relationship anarchy where they have sort of a, a minimal and limited sort of set rules and they allow people to explore and, and express themselves in, in various ways uh, without the restrictions of, let's say, their partners and limits and rules within their relationship. And some people have non-hierarchical polyamory, which is they don't have a view of having partners in sort of a one up or one down or more important or less important sort of perspective. 
So within poly communities, even those who identify as poly may have differences within how they express their polyamory and how they enjoy and, and want to live their life. So it's important even within those communities to also understand the nuances and differences of how we want to live our lives. So true and not generalize. How, how couple A experiences polyamory is not how couple B experiences polyamory in the same way that heterosexual couple A doesn't experience sex in the same way that heterosexual couple B does. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's I hate painting with such broad strokes. Right. So, how sex savvy are you? Let's take this week's Sex IQ quiz and find out. Okay, it's time now for this week's Sex IQ quiz. Today we're going to be talking about neurochemicals in the brain associated with sex and love. Which of the following neurochemicals activates the reward center or pleasure center in the brain? It's also associated with all basic drives. It's experienced as a need or a craving. It is a natural stimulant. It's activated by novelty. And here's a clue. If you've listened to any of my previous podcasts, I've mentioned that a couple of times. It's considered the foot on the gas pedal of the sexual car. And it's elevated in people with sexually compulsive behavior, drug addicts, gamblers, binge eaters, etc. It's also associated with euphoric recall. So which of the following neurochemicals would have the characteristics I just listed? Is it A, dopamine, B, serotonin, C, oxytocin, or D, adrenaline? Well, the answer is A, dopamine. Yes, dopamine is the reward or pleasure center in the brain. It's the feeling we get when we're eating chocolate cake or we're really falling in love and we can't keep our hands off someone that is dopamine. Okay, question number two. Which of the four neurochemicals is responsible for the obsessive thoughts we have with a new partner when we're falling in love? This neurochemical causes feelings of losing our focus feeling crazy, being distracted by the new relationship and all consumed in that you may not be able to sleep or feel hungry. Which of the four following neurochemicals meet that description? Is it A, dopamine, B, serotonin, C, oxytocin, or D, adrenaline? The answer is B, serotonin. Serotonin is responsible for having obsessive thoughts, not necessarily just around falling in love and sex, but any sort of obsessive thought. And one of the reasons we prescribe selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, the most common class of antidepressants, is because it reduces obsessive and intrusive thoughts that may be bothersome or burdensome. The obsessive thoughts associated with falling in love and sex are often welcome and enjoyable, but for people who struggle with intrusive thoughts that are disturbing or violent, we want to reduce the level of serotonin that is in the brain. Okay, question number three. Which of the following neurochemicals meets this description? 
It's called the love hormone or the cuddle chemical. It's also known as the attachment or bonding hormone. It is activated by all kinds of intimacy, even holding hands or hugging, not just sexual contact. It increases a sense of calm, satisfaction, and peacefulness. It is also activated by nursing a baby. It increases with orgasm and is often responsible for what we call the postcoital glow. It increases five times the normal circulating amounts after orgasm and remains elevated for up to 24 hours. Which of the following neurochemicals meet those descriptors? Is it A, dopamine, B, serotonin, C, oxytocin, or D, adrenaline? The answer is C, oxytocin. Okay, question number four. Which of the following neurochemicals is known for activating the so-called fight or flight response? When this neurochemical is activated, it increases blood levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And this neurochemical is responsible for why we start to sweat or our heart races or our mouths go dry when we are initially attracted to someone and start to think we're falling in love. Is it A, dopamine, B, serotonin, C, oxytocin, or D, adrenaline? Well, by process of elimination, you know that it must be D, adrenaline. I hope you learned a little bit about the neurochemicals activated in your brain today when you're falling in love. And now let's get back to our interview. You know, one of the things I think is most valuable for people to do, even if they're well-versed in in their lifestyle and identity, and even if they're brand new and coming out, is to explore more self-help, more reading, more books, more more podcasts. I find that that can be so valuable. That's why we're doing this, man. (laughs) Exactly. We just did a high five, by the way. And I did did mention the podcasts because they're so important because people are on the go and not everybody's reading books or or downloading, you know, on their Kindles. Right. That hearing about sort of these different... uh, possibilities can help people gain that courage and that strength to maybe look at themselves and say, this is actually maybe who I am and and who I'm living is not actually the real me. Right. I love books like uh, Sex at Dawn or More Than Two or Opening Up or Ethical Slut. These are sort of my four books that I go to for people to begin that process of self-awareness because especially a book like Opening Up by Tristan Terramino, there's each chapter sort of uh, uh, goes over different types of Mm non-monogamy. And I think it's chapter, one of the chapters later towards the book has a a focus on non-monogamous and monogamous individuals in a relationship. Mm -hmm. There's a chapter on different types of non-monogamy. And I just find that it's so helpful for people to read it and then sort of like they gravitate towards certain identities. And that's a beginning that process of self-exploration. So true. Because it's different for everyone. Mm -hmm. There's no one way of doing it. And that's why I I say everyone has their own contract. Mm -hmm. And when couples come to me for guidance, I'll say, you know, we're going to talk about what works for you guys and what your goals are. Also, everything can be renegotiated, right? Like this man who reached out, his wife was on board with him sleeping with men and she no longer is. And so when there's a change, what if someone agrees Mm -hmm. to something and then they discover that they're not comfortable, then 
is it too late? Has the precedent already been put in place and they have no rights? Can they change their mind? Of course, of course they can. And so I bring this up with people in advance that this is what someone feels like they're going to be able to tolerate, but they may not. Mm -hmm. And we just have to keep monitoring and processing how you're feeling and understand that we don't know where this is going to end. And I think by building in that flexibility and that wiggle room, people feel a little bit safer moving forward. Absolutely. And and I love when I see clients in that growth process of gathering information, of doing sort of that self-exploration and internal processing, and then getting to the point where they may want to explore actually you know, <laughs> relationally or, or sort of publicly or in some sort of manner of letting out some of the things that they've discovered about themselves into some type of external sort of format, whether it's attending a workshop or going to a conference or a play party or exactly. their first trip to a dungeon or their first trip to a non-monogamy event. I mean, these things can be life-changing and so powerful when you so, meet. So, so powerful. Because I'm a big believer that we need to encourage clients and people in general to find community, that community helps heal. It helps us feel it challenges that feelings of being like isolated or the other and it makes us feel sort of strength in numbers and that we're a part of a, a community and I, I see it's wonderful less isolating. things. Yeah. Yeah. When I did my ABDL episode, probably ten ABDLs reached out to me mm-hmm. and said, Your podcast helped me with my shame. Beautiful. Right? I mean, that's why I'm doing this. Yeah. And everyone's at a different place in their process of exploration and growth and maybe even uh, identity formation and that's sad that uh when people sharing sort of that that pain that they're experiencing and and my hope is that they would work towards maybe more of that integration of of a healthy sort of positive view of the self with their sexual expression that even something like and i know we may sometimes demonize something like the internet or porn for whatever reason somebody may pejoratively like view these as they actually bring people together, that internet chat rooms and forums. FetLife. FetLife. That these can bring people, even in an online community, can make you feel less alone. Or, Let, I mean, or pe- finding porn that you can masturbate to that uh, shows showcases your fetish or, exactly. or your desires. And you can realize that people are making this because there's other folks out there. And I can experience some pleasure so by, by masturbating to orgasm. And knowing that you're not alone. I- I've had patients yeah. tell me they were suicidal at points feeling like the only one in the world who was sexually aroused by X or Y. And then they discovered that there were other people. My ABDL thought Mm -hmm. he was a freak. And then the internet came and he realized, oh my God, there's actually a whole genre of porn about this. And he said, I I may be a freak, but I'm not the only freak, you know? And um, it's very validating. I've always found that I've had this this conversation with some clients that you may feel like a freak, but what we're looking for is you to accept that freak so that you can get freaky. Yeah, and fly that freak fleet. I can't ever say this. Fly that freak flag proudly. Proudly, exactly. Right? Yeah. Each subculture within a larger culture, there's still going to be judgments and there's still going to be expectations that people create based in their own conservative or, or upbringings or what social constructs sort of create as expectations. And I find that a lot of us are trying to uh, live up to something that many of us are not. And, and I think that that really shatters and challenges the ability for us to be truly authentic that the 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 reality is that all of us have struggles all of us have anxieties or mental health concerns all of us have unique sexual aspects of who we are and if we could only get to a place of just acknowledging and accepting that we're all different but that could also make us all feel very similar because that we also need things like intimacy or sexuality or uh, acceptance these are all sort of basic human desires i think absolutely yeah and people will say to me 
you know, why are you allied? Why are you an ally of this community, you know, if this isn't your lifestyle? Because people sh should feel free and have a right to express whatever they want. Period. Th that's it. End of story. You don't have to be a part of the lifestyle to be an ally of for people who are marginalized. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. <laughs> and I think that with any marginalized community, it's so important to have the, the support of allies, the support of people who aren't necessarily living in that community, but are supporting it from afar. And I think that's how we gain strength in numbers. That's how we gain support. I think that's how we start changing the political landscape right. around some of our, our the challenges around sexuality. The people who are not marginalized have the responsibility to shed light and support the marginalized groups. And that's what I do in my role as a sex mm -hmm. therapist. Something that, uh, that I'm, for myself, I'm noticing more of that uh, in my own personal life, I've, I've found to be valuable, and I'm also bringing that into my sessions, is helping people and myself as well to focus more on balance in life and also encouraging things like mindfulness, meditation, uh, slowing things down, and creating more of a self-care integrated into our daily life as opposed to I'm going to work myself to the bone for, you know, <laughs> 60 hours a week and I'm going to be, you know, experiencing all these difficulties sexually and relationally and life-wise and then I'm about to break and then I go on a two-week vacation right. once a year to, <laughs> to heal and then I come back and I start that cycle up again. So I'm a big proponent of self-care, of consistent sort of self-healing along the way and I find that that to be really valuable in helping people reduce, you know, mental health concerns to manage them. I also find it really helps with relational and sexual concerns as well, too, that I think part of the future of sex therapy is incorporating more of a mindfulness within our, our, our support, that it's not just about behavioral techniques that we've learned from Masters and Johnsons from you know, 40, 50 years ago, that it's such a valuable place to create sort of a balance and a, and a, a stability and a security in life within the self. And that also translates, I think, more into uh, uh, how we express ourselves relationally and sexually. Vice versa, both impact it's all connected all interconnected and a lot of people will say you know as a sex therapist are you, you're not really looking at the whole picture you're just looking at the sexual piece i'm like that's not true at all the sexual health concern is what brings people in the door right and then we talk about their life we talk about their life Something I'll tell a client is a new client, especially when they, they, you know, let's say it's something about their penis. And a lot of guys are so focused on their penis. My penis is my penis that it's not working. It's not, you know, staying hard. Act, what, someone actually brought a ruler recently to my office. A lot of focus. I yeah. mean, it's, 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 it's a lot of obsession. You could tell there's a lot of pain in there. And, yeah. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. Part of what I'll share with them is, and I'll say something like, you know, your penis is telling us something. That, yes, that you, I say that all the time. That your penis is like the thermometer that's taking the temperature yes. of your relationship or your life. And we've got to get to the things in your life and in the relationship that are uh, affecting your penis. Your penis has your back. Your penis is trying to tell you something. And you need to be curious and reframe it as, you know, as a favor, right? Your penis is doing you a solid. That's right. what I say. And guys laugh all the time. Well, I think we're doing them a disservice if every session is like, let's talk about your penis. Tell me about your penis. What about your penis <laughs> exactly. today? How was your penis last week? You know, <laughs> I think that would be... I know, we, right? We, we and it doesn't the it reinforce these unhelpful notions that performance is the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's so and, true. And they're their mind is blown when they realize you can be an incredible lover and your penis doesn't even have to come outside of your boxers. Exactly. That, I say that. All that you can be the time. an incredible relational I say being. you have a mouth, you have hands, you have toys, you you have your imagination and creativity and playfulness. And seriously, it 
doesn't even need to come yeah. out of your box for it, sure. <laughs> if your erect penis is what makes a relationship, then partners don't need us because all they, they can purchase one that can be erect and hard and vibrate and do funky things that we could never do anyway. With so, artificial intelligence. So it's not about that, that there's much more to, you know, for example, when I have a, a clients, let's say males who are threatened by sex toys. And I mm-hmm. think sex toys are wonderful. I think that they're an incredible. A lot of guys are jealous of vibrators. Well, I, I, I challenge them on that. So you're jealous or, or insecure about some type of technology being brought into the room that's enhancing the pleasure and making your of life your better and, exactly. and, and wonderful. And your partner satisfied? And they say, yeah. And I said, well, then why are you using that smartphone? And why do you allow yourself and your partner to use a car? Because these are all technologies that are making our life better and enhancing our world as well, too. Yeah. Why are you just singling out this, this vibrator or this Wevibe? And how does that work out? Well, then they start getting stumped and we start getting this sort of cognitive like chess match, if you will, of like going back and forth. But what we're really doing is trying to challenge their cognitions around right. this is a threat. And, and I want to get them to the place of saying this is actually an asset. This is an ally that... When your partner goes and has lunch with their friends and starts talking about how all the how great sex is and how the relationship's improving and how they're having orgasms now, they're not giving credit to their vibrator. They're right. giving credit to their relationship, that you'll be a part of that. And then you're now playing towards like the male ego. And all of a sudden they're like, I could be a better lover. <laughs> I could be a part of that conversation. And... You know, I, I just find that we have to embrace things like sex toys and eroticism and maybe stepping outside of the box. I think that can be such a wonderful thing for our relationships. And novelty, right? Novelty activates dopamine. So when you do something new or engage in and unf- have sex in an unfamiliar place or put a wig on or role play, these things, uh, fantasy is underappreciated, right? Esther Perel calls fantasy a poor man's bread, but but she's saying no. Let's let's take advantage of our imaginations mm-hmm. and our creativity, and you know, sky's the limit. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, some of my favorite. I like to also encourage clients to do like experimental uh, homework assignments, if you will. And here in Los Angeles, we have a place called the Pleasure Chest, which uh-huh. is this wonderful sex toy and novelty shop. And I'll encourage couples to go together. Like when you're ready. I want you to embark on going there. I want you to stay in there for a half an hour. And I want you to ask one of the employees three questions about your pleasure that you want to have with your partner (laughs) present. And it's so interesting how they come back with, I was so nervous and scared and I felt uncomfortable. And then I asked a question and the person like gave me some answers. And all of a sudden we dialogued about it and (laughs) yada, yada, yada. And all of a sudden they walked out of there buying two or three toys. Yes. And then they're like enjoying these toys with them. And I've always told clients too, you can spend $100 on dinner and, and two tickets to the movies or you could spend $100 on a sex toy but I guarantee you that sex toy is going to last you a lot longer than that dinner <laughs> and those, that movie and also the self-awareness of knowing what feels pleasurable for us the 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 type of technique the type of stimulation the the areas of our body the erogenous zones the secondary erogenous zones that a lot of times if we don't have that individual awareness and understanding of ourselves maybe through masturbation or through our own previous sexual experiences and then communicating that to our partner. I think that's also a challenge that people experience. Uh, I just had a couple recently where she was trying to share with her male partner what feels good in her vulva area. And mm-hmm. she was just saying, you know, down there, just, you know, he's down there. And when he does, mm-hmm. you know, kind of just like, and it was so unclear and he was very unclear. He's like, <laughs> he's, he's the type of male that uh, has like a, uh, like a notepad and he's writing down every technique and just really, <laughs> right. really right. appreciate down that. Down there, it, that's like speaking Greek. Right. And so I, in the moment, I just drew a picture of like a vulva, Yeah. you know, really quickly while, while I was taking my notes and I shared it with her and I said, can you please show where on your vulva yeah. and also in what ways you like it stimulated, whether it's with your fingers or with your mouth or with, yes. and it was really challenging for her to, exp- to face this, but 
she actually had more of a vocabulary tactilely with her fingers and hands mm-hmm. and showcasing it mm-hmm. than it was verbally. And, and everyone has their own comfort. Do you see my anatomically correct vulva puppet over yes. there? That gets a lot of use in here. It does. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to put a picture of it. I know sometimes that in therapy or research or teaching, we want to emphasize empirical data and research. And and, uh, and I know sometimes we don't have that with, with certain areas within intimacy, but I've always found the five love languages that a lot of my couples are really responding to that, that yeah. I know that there's not necessarily a lot of data that suggests this, you know, the, the backing of this, but it makes it, sense to people. It makes sense. Yeah. And they need they, that they translation. Get, they respond to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it alleviates some of that, like that anxiety or that, uh, that disheartening sort of feeling like they don't understand me like, Oh, they just have a different way of understanding exactly. me or expressing that to me. And that yep. really heals. It heals and it allows resentment to kind of evaporate it's like oh he doesn't do it on purpose he just he sees through a different lens or he experiences things differently so i do think that's helpful yeah for the listeners who who don't know uh the five love languages essentially talks about different ways people express their love that may be different and so to understand each other's style will help you sort of alleviate uh, as what kimberly's saying the 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 resentful piece and one example in my life that i saw this witnessing was my parents my dad is more like tactile and like, you know, uh, physical touch, physical touch. Yeah. He'd be more of acts of service, that yeah. type of individual. So yeah. th- those are two of the love languages. And so many years ago for their anniversary, about a, two months before the anniversary for my parents, he was sort of leaving at night and he was kind of going for like four or five hours and he would sort of disappear <laughs> for like three times per week. And, you know, we could all notice like my dad's gone, but there was no conversation about <laughs> it. There was nothing happening. I mean, you could have easily thought he was out cheating or yeah, out, you know, yeah, doing something. Yeah, yeah, of course. So she, the the uh, anniversary comes around and he has this gift for my mom and she opens it up. And my mom is a very, very short Latin woman, <laughs> pretty common in our culture. And she opens it up and it's a footstool. It's like a three-step stool that oh. can help her open, uh, get things from the oh, cupboard. And acts of service. He made this from scratch. He oh. bought the wood. He built it. He sanded it. He stained it. He, That's it, true love, man. It was gorgeous. That's true love. Well, here's what's funny is that after my mom heard this is where he's been for the last couple of months building this, my mom said, why didn't you just buy this? Mm-hmm. Like, you could have been at home the, all these, these these nights. And but that was his way of showing his love. That was his way of showing his love. But my mom's way of showing his love is just being there, being present. Exactly. You know? and so they, they Quality time. Quality time. So that, that's my own personal example of how them knowing that that's who each of them are help them accept that their differences can still mean that we can still love. Absolutely. It's so key. It's so key. Well... How do people find you if they want to learn more about you or come see you? Sure. Uh, you can find me online, social media. My social media links are at Hernando underscore Chavez. And my last name ends with an S. Also, my website is drhernandochavez.com. And you can find me if you just Google my name. And do you do any online stuff for people who are outside of L.A.? I'll, I'll do a, a Zoom and also phone sessions, but also only within California because that's our, our License, legal requirement. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on Sex Savvy. Thank you for having me. And I I think it's a wonderful space for people to, I think, explore their authenticity. And I'm hoping that that people got a lot out of our discussion and maybe are exploring more about themselves. I'm sure that they did. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kimberly. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep sex savvy free and available to all who are interested. 
Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support. 